Gorman. He called my cell phone and he asked me, hey, um, would you be willing to come to Timberland to preach? But prior to that, I had a commitment to preach at a church in Hillsboro. Well, it turns out that the men camp is happening at two locations. This one happens to be a little bit closer to home. I'm from Puyallup, which is about an hour from here. And so I'm glad to be here. Um, I wanted to say a few things about Pastor Nick and Chris Gorman. I visited a NAB Northwest Conference, I want to say it was about three years ago now, it might have been a little bit more, and Pastor Nick was one of the preaching pastors at this conference, and it hit me so hard. He's filled with passion and joy in Christ, and I just remember just being in the back seat, just in awe of what God was doing, doing through this man, so I know a lot more about him than maybe he knows about me, but I'm just so excited that I get to be a part of the congregation that he gets to preach at, you know, it's like those, those men that come alongside Paul, and, and they're kind of coming up right behind the, the coattails of other people, I feel like I'm sort of on the coattails of Pastor Nick. Uh, Pastor Chris Gorman, another good friend of mine, we've had several encounters together, he's, he's the regional minister of the Northwest for the NAB. And I'm in the process of not only growing in Christ as a leader, but we're also developing plans for a potential church plant in the Graham area. So we're excited to see how God is going to work in that. And Chris Gorman has a big part in that. So I told him I'm going to cling to your leg over the next 10 years as we grow together in this this, uh, journey that we're going on. I want to thank Elder uh, Rich Benson as well. He has a love for the Word of God. Last night he called me up and he said, is there anything that you, you have questions or anything like that? And then he went into how we, we, we stand for the reading of God's word and he explained to me, this is probably the most important aspect of the sermon message, which I agree with. So I'm very thankful that there is this emphasis on the word of God because I intend to bring the unadulterated teaching of the word of God this morning. So will you stand with me for the reading of words, the, the word of God? We're going to be speaking out of the parable of what's commonly known as the prodigal son. I prefer to call it the the parable of the loving father, and it begins in chapter 15 and verse 11. So turn with me to Luke chapter 15 and verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he had came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now this older son was in the field and he had come and drew near to the house. He heard the music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, 
because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's a, I asked if there was a series going on that maybe I can just attach myself to, or would you like me to bring my own message this morning? And I was invited to bring my own message. And so I chose this parable of what I'm calling the loving father, um, because it has a lot to do with my culture. My name is Ozan. It's a Turkish name. It literally means poem or poet or sonnet. And as I read this parable, it brings certain emotions to my mind that I don't think the, the general American culture will recognize because we've grown up in a much different culture than those who were growing up in that part of Israel around the Jerusalem and the Roman Empire, the Greeks and all that stuff. There was, there was a lot of cultural aspects that are tied to this parable that I intend to bring this morning. It's also a very familiar passage, and it's got ups and downs because when you bring a familiar passage, it, it, you tend to gravitate towards what people may have already heard but it's also a little bit challenging because if you bring something that maybe somebody hasn't heard, then you tend to get a little more criticism over the things that you say. And so it's not uncommon for me to share a message like this and then to be, have someone come up to me and say, hey, you missed this, you missed that, you missed that. I've got an hour maybe to preach, right? I could bring two maybe. I hear you like long sermons, and you know I'm down for that. I'm not going to get everything in this parable, and I recognize that. But I do want to capture the parts of it that really struck me hard. I've done prison ministry for about 10 years now, and when I go into the prison, the parable of the prodigal son is one of the most impactful parables that we bring into the prison because the men inside the prison have convinced themselves that they are not worthy of the love of God. And as many times they come up to me and they say, you don't understand, Ozon, what I've done, where I've been, and you're going to come here and tell me that God can forgive me? There's something so impactful about that message that the world needs to hear, especially those that are incarcerated. People often focus on the parable of the prodigal son or even the older brother, but this message really is a story of a loving father. We're falling into the same sort of trap today, I think, where the culture of our day tends to dictate and determine what it is that we are to preach on the pulpit. And what Jesus was doing at that time as he walked and ministered and preached was he was taking the doctrine and he was using it to infiltrate the culture. He was countercultural and he was radical in so many ways. And what he's doing with this parable is he's taking something of culture and he's modifying the worldview around it. And we're going to see that here in a moment. I'm going to share a little bit about my experience as well in Turkey and what is being communicated through Jesus in this parable. To fully understand this parable, we're going to have to cast ourselves into the cultural thoughts and patterns of that day. So I intend to take your mind and situate yourself in current-day Turkey area, and current-day Israel area, uh, in order to understand, especially at that time, of what the culture was like. And one of the things that I experienced as I grew up in Turkey was that Turkey is a very shame and honor paradigm. You avoid what brings you shame, and you do what brings you honor. 
And I remember growing up, if I misbehaved in front of my parents and it was a group of people around, I was going to get it. Because you are to show my friends the very thing that I want to be revealed, which is a, a, a term of honor and respect. And so when I act in a very disrespectful way, I'm going to get reprimanded for that. So I want to summarize what the attitude of the Pharisees were like at that time, and it's just a few chapters for it. So turn with me to Luke chapter 18. And this is the attitude that the Pharisees had. They're a part of the audience that Jesus is going to be sharing this story with. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, crying out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the attitude of the Pharisees at that time. It was an attitude of entitlement, it was relative righteousness, so they would look at their own righteousness and they would look at the world around them and they would puff themselves up. And so as they puffed themselves up, they would put other people down. In the case of this parable, the Pharisee looking down to the tax collector and saying, I thank God I'm not like that guy. This is the audience that Jesus is sharing the parable with. This parable, as you go through it, is going to be nonstop shame. They're going to fail to accept in their own circles Several points about the parable are going to be counterintuitive. It's going to rock their world. It's an eye roller. It's a head shaker. As you go through, it's just one shock after another shock after another shock when you look at it through the cultural perspective of the people that are listening to this parable. This is a parable that Jesus is sharing, and I want to just say a little something about parables because Jesus shared in Matthew chapter 13 what he's doing with parables. He's taking a very simple story and he's backing it up with a very profound spiritual truth. So even though he's sharing a physical story, we don't want to ignore or fall behind to not recognize the spiritual reality that's going on. There are deep spiritual implications to the story that we don't want to miss this morning. Another thing he mentioned is that there are righteous people and prophets who longed to hear the very things that Jesus preached. And we this morning get to experience the very things that the righteous people and the prophets of old have longed to hear years before. So isn't it amazing that we get to be on this side of the cross to recognize what God would have to say to us this morning? Praise God for that. Now before I get into the story, I want to say one other thing, just to set up the cultural context. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 very briefly in Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors... And sinners were all drawing near to him. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus ate with tax collectors. He hung out with sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Can you believe that? Are you getting that attitude of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 now kind of rolled among the scene of what's about to take place? This parable falls in line with three other parables. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm not very fond of the game hide and seek. I've got four kids who want to play hide and seek with me when we're not playing the game. And that, that's a problem, right? Because you're calling their name out and you're like, where is our child? Growing up, I had a circumstance where we were playing hide-and-seek. It was an actual legitimate hide-and-seek game. I've got an older brother, a twin brother, and a younger sister, and we all went and hid, and I was the one who's going out seeking my brothers and sisters. And I found my older brother, and I found my twin brother, but my little sister was nowhere to be found. I could not find her. And so I went to Mom and Dad, and I said, Mom, Dad, I don't know where Wendy's at. And so... Panic begins to rise. Anxiety levels begin to rise. And we start to look for my little sister, and she's nowhere to be found. And pretty soon the neighbors now know that we don't know because we're outside now yelling her name out because maybe she's outside in a bush or something like that. So a neighbor on this side, neighbor on this side, across the street, we're all coming together. Now we're working our way down the street and back looking for my sister. We could not find her. It was heart-wrenching because it's like, where is she at? Well, as it turns out, she was in the shoe closet. (laughs) which is probably the the first place you would think to look. So I've been titled as the worst seeker in all the world for this game. And maybe for that reason, I'm just not fond of hide and seek. Jesus was in the mode of seeking out and saving lost people. The parable that we're going to look at this morning is a parable of repentance. It's a story of what repentance looks like in the life of a believer. And he starts with the parable of the lost sheep. He says, what man of you, starting in verse 3, having a hundred sheep, If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, if a sheep gets lost out of a herd like that back in that day, it was a death sentence for that sheep. So the the shepherd, in this case, would say, I'm going to leave the 99 that are safe right here to go and find the one who's basically going to be dead when I find it. And so he's using this as the means of, of displaying how Jesus seeks and saves the lost. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together all of his friends and neighbors, saying to him, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be many more. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she lost one coin, does not light the lamp and sweep the whole house, seeking diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the one coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Jesus is in the mode of saving even one lost sinner. And that's when he gets into the parable of the loving father. This is the focus of our parable, which adds a human element to God seeking and finding the lost, right? We've looked at the sheep, we've looked at the coin, and now we're going to look at the human element of it. And it describes the sweet realities of what a repentant person can look like. There are three major sections in this parable, and each of them offer their own spiritual realities tied to this aspect of repentance. There's the younger son, who really represents all of us, This is a repentant sinner who comes to the understanding of his desperate need for Jesus Christ. 
And then there's the Father who represents God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father helps us understand the joy of God in salvation for even one lost sinner. And then lastly, there's the older son who represents the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the self-righteous people. That older son who helps us understand what resistance to repentance can look like. This story gives us such great insight into the doctrine of repentance, and I'm so excited to see where this is going to take us. And to help us understand, we're going to look at three aspects of repentance. The first is a required repentance, which is in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 19. The second is a reconciled repentance, which is Luke chapter 15, verses 20 to 24. And then lastly, a rejected repentance, a required repentance, a reconciled repentance, and a rejected repentance. First, a required repentance, verses 11 to 19. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." A son coming to his father and asking him to give his inheritance right now is tantamount to saying, Dad, I wish you were dead because that inheritance follows the father's death. And so to come to a father and say, Father, give me my inheritance right now is like saying, God, I want you dead right now because I want my share right now. You're in my way. I just want that unadulterated, shameful acts that take place behind the scenes in a way that I can spend with uncontrolled restraint. He wants his money, and he wants it right now. Now, if a son were to go to his father and ask that kind of a request in front of a crowd, the proper response at that point would be discipline. Maybe like a backhand to the face. Especially in that culture where you would not expect a son to say something like that. So the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees would be listening to this thing and going, What? To think that somebody would ask for their inheritance before the father passed away, to wish your dad would be dead is like the ultimate insult to your dad. So immediately they're thinking to themselves, this kid is going to get it. And what does the father do? He gives the younger son what he asks, and he divides his inheritance. First of all, no son would ever do that, but secondly, no father would listen to his son after wishing he were dead and then say, I'm going to go ahead and split this thing the way that my son had asked. The Pharisees at this point would be saying, where is the honor in this? What a shameful act for the father to just straight up split the inheritance. Jesus was a master storyteller. We're only a few verses into the parable, and the Pharisees and the scribes are having a fit at this point over what's happening and taking place. The spiritual implication of this is that We are all given a freedom. 
We all have a choice to choose between life or death. We have the freedom to either accept or reject God. But here's the dilemma that we are all faced with, which the Bible does not shy away from. The sinner's freedom will always look for fulfillment outside of God. We will try and prone away. We are just prone to wander. And it reminds me of that song, you know, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Oh, what a horrible situation to be in that we're given this freedom and we're just prone to be away from God. When left to our own sinful state, the Bible says we will always choose to reject God. Rather than following God's loving direction, we choose to follow our own selfish appetites. We act in rebellion towards God. We reject and oppose God because we are convinced, listen to this, that our way is the better way. Rather than honoring God, we choose sin. Sin is rebellion against the Father. It's missing the mark. It is absence of a relationship with Him. It is disdain for God. And not only God, but also for God's authority God's will, God's blessings. It is a turning from God. It is a removable of accountability and responsibility to him. It is to deny God's place. It is to hate him. It is to wish him dead. It is to waste your life in selfish indulgence and unrestrained lust of the heart. Sin despises the gospel. It is a reckless evil, and it is to squander the gift of life that God gave to each and every one of us. For the lost sinner, this is the hopeless situation. Spiritual bankruptcy, emptiness, helplessness, hopelessness, and nowhere to turn except death. Romans chapter 3 says we cannot escape this reality. Let me just turn to Romans chapter 3 very quickly and read this because this is such a tremendous part of the scripture Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 11, it says, No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. The consequences of our attitude towards God is always death and never life. This is exactly what we see in the behavior of the prodigal son. Notice in verse 13, the son runs away from the father as far as he can go to a remote area. He goes where no one will interfere with his self-indulgence or unrestrained desires. And it doesn't take long, does it? It says, not many days later, he squanders the estate with loose living. He wastes all of what the father has provided to him. And this is where we get the term prodigal, by the way. It means wasteful. He took everything of his father's inheritance and he just wasted it away. He partook in such reckless living And all that was left was a trail of destruction and garbage everywhere he went. And as if it weren't enough that he would be doing this to himself, a severe famine arose in verse 14. Where are his friends at this point? You know, we got lots of friends when we can give our friends what they want from us. But the moment we're in need and we have nothing to offer, our friends turn away except for the true friends who love us because they will be with us to the very end. You see, a famine occurred outside of the son's control. And so I question, why would Jesus even include the famine? Because it's not like a famine needed to occur for the son to to go to a point of reaching death. Well, I want to offer my opinion on why, and there's two reasons why I think the famine is included there. Number one is Jesus is creating the worst 
of circumstances. And this is to depict the helpless state of a sinner. In the situation that the son is in right now, if he were to continue on the path that he's in, it would have ultimately led to death for this child. And so we see this extreme circumstance that's been created for the lost sinner. Secondly, it reveals God's character because in verse 17, the son asks, remember this, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? It's one thing to have enough bread. He's in a famine and he's remembering his father who has chosen to give his day laborers more than enough's wage for a day. So he's recognizing the generosity of the father. So not only does it create this horrible circumstance the son is in, but it also speaks to the generosity of the father in dealing with the son. So what was the result? The son says, I'm in need. He began to be in need. I love that. Because isn't that like the beginning of repentance? Isn't that so necessary to come to the understanding that we're in need? How can we receive the Father's forgiveness and love without first understanding that we are in need of the Father's forgiveness and love? This is the beginning of repentance. And it is to understand our desperate need of a Savior. Well, in verse 15 to 16, he takes it upon himself and he hires himself out to a citizen of the pigs. And look, it's not like he was looking for work and then the citizen said, hey, why don't you come work for me? It says he hired himself out to the citizen. In other words, he's going around, he's begging, can I just do anything? Whatever you got for me, I got to do it because he's just desperate at this point. He is so desperate. Here's another shocker, by the way. You won't find pigs in Turkey. You would not find pigs in that culture. And the reason for that is because in the Jewish culture, pigs are vile. They are disgusting and dirty animals. And notice how Jesus inserts the pigs into the story at this point. This child is so desperate that he's willing to hire himself out to a servant to go and feed off of the pods of the pigs. This is worse than dealing with pigs. He's actually in the filth of the pigs eating off of the same food that the pigs ate out of. And in that culture, that would have been so disgusting. This is shocking to think that anybody would go that low to think that they would have to eat with the pigs. This is shame beyond comprehension. There are those who, like the prodigal son, they run away from the father. They choose to feed off of the swine and with an economy of good works. They hope to save enough to support themselves now and into the future. Any hope of self-salvation or self-satisfaction is a restless and exhausting pursuit. If the younger son would have stayed in his current situation, he would have ultimately been met with death. This is true of anyone who relies on their own works for salvation. But there are those who eventually come to the understanding that not only are they lost, but they desire to be saved from their current circumstance into the loving arms of the Father. They seek out God and are received with the affection and embrace. And I tell you, it is such a loving embrace. He formulates a plan, and he finally comes to his senses. And he says, I'm going to die of hunger. I can't do it. There's no other way. My only option is to call my father, who I disrespected and I shamed him in front of other people. This is the picture of a desperate sinner coming 
to the understanding of their helpless estate. He's poor, he's destitute, he's hungry, he's hopeless, he's dissolving, and he's dying. All sinners are in desperate need of salvation. All of us. Yes, we have all been given a freedom that's going to take our sin as far as we want it to go. And it is so enticing. Here we see the rebellion of the one who had no relationship with the one who gave him life. No relationship to the one who held all the richness of life. He was looking for fulfillment outside of God and away from God. And in his futile ambition, he became exhausted and empty and hungry and homeless. Notice he says he's willing to be treated as a hired servant. He's willing to work his way back into the Father's presence, isn't he? This is the picture of repentance, isn't it? When you look back on your past life and you recollected how you insulted God, you despised his commands, you neglected his word, you rejected his mercies, and then you reflect on your former sins and your blatant disregard for who God is, and you become poor because you forfeited all the spiritual richness of what God had in store for you by abandoning the source from whom all blessings flow. And then you cry out, how deep is the divide between me and God? What will it take? And you ask, what is life all about? This is a picture that Jesus creates of the younger son that is so extreme. There's no question it's extreme. What he did was disrespectful, it was immoral, it was wasteful, it was rebellious, and it was foolish. The circumstance that was created was created on purpose. Look, not only to show that we had a desperate need of a Savior, but listen to this, to answer this lingering question. How will the Father deal with a child this bad? The son says, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me a hard servant. Humbling. The attitude of entitlement now is an attitude of humility. He must go face the father, because listen to this, the father is the only way. Jesus is the only way. There is no other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ. He's aware that he's going to face scorn and mockery and ridicule and disdain from the community because if a child treats their father that bad and then they come back into the community, get ready because the community is coming after you. So he's anticipating, I'm going to come down that road and people are going to throw garbage at me and they're going to call me names and they're going to put shame upon shame on the son who comes to the father. But he's okay with that because he knows his father to be a gentle, loving, and generous man. And at a minimum, he trusts in his father's goodness to be received, even if it means as a hired servant. You see, at the moment of repentance, our eyes are not only opened up to the nature of our sin, but it also points us to the nature of God's character. We see him for who he truly is. I believe this is where the prodigal son was found. 
See, when he finally came to the understanding that he is who he is, and he looks at the Father and he says, he's so generous with me. He's found in the kindness and the love of the arms of the Father. He was found in that. And when he reflected on his attitude towards his father, he says, I was crazy to ever leave that. There is no gospel apart from repentance. It is no surprise to me that when Jesus entered into a preaching ministry, he said, repent and receive the gospel. The call of repentance is at the heart of biblical evangelism, and it is a gift from God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The younger son, finally, he's beginning to trust in the father's goodness, his mercy and his compassion and his love. The father he once scorned, he now admires because he sees him for who he truly is and he's ready to leave his miserable situation. See, repentance opens our eyes to the marvelous reality of who God is. And repentance is necessary. And what is the father's response to this disgusting, vile, and heinous act? Let's take a look. A reconciled repentance in verses 20 to 24. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Praise God. He must have been walking for miles to come back to us. Because remember, the money has gone. He doesn't have the carriage anymore. He doesn't have the horses. He doesn't have the rides and all the help that he could just purchase. So now he's on his own walking back to his father and his feet are sore. And he must have come over the crest of that hill and saw everything that he remembered as a small child. Everything that he had previously given up and neglected. And there are still many more miles to go between him and his father. Can you just imagine what emotions that son must have been going through when after so long, he sees his home. Only this time, his excitement is for the father and not his circumstances. He remembers his father's kindness. He remembers it's been engraved on his conscience all along. You see, people typically want the things that only God can offer, but they don't want God. And he recognizes his father and he says, I love him. And he's trusting in his goodness. There are some of you here this morning who have come to that blessing understanding, and yet you question, how would God approach me? You dare not even lift up your voice to heaven, and instead you pound your chest, and with that cry you say, forgive me, a sinner. Praise God for that. You question whether you're ready to follow through with those convictions that you've received from God. You question, what if I'm rejected? What if I die before I'm received into the arms of the Father's love? And you say to yourself, if I go to God, he will never receive me. I am way too wretched. 
He might receive you, but he'll never receive me. To you, feeling far away off in Christ, if you seek his mercy, you shall never die before you have found the Father. And as much as you know you need a Savior and seek out Jesus, you are one of his children. And you will not taste death until you are received into the kingdom of God. There is no evidence in scripture that God will ever, ever, ever reject a prayer of repentance. He always answers that prayer. For you, this passage is the most comforting passage because while he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him. And the child is going to undergo all that community shame. And the younger son arrives, and upon his return, we see the father waiting in great anticipation. It must have been daylight because he's looking for his son. And he's wondering all along, what is going on with him? Is he okay? Is he coming back? So he must have been looking over the crest, and then his son comes over the top, and he recognizes him to some extent because, you see, now he's famished, and he's stinky. He smells like pigs, and he's dirty, and his clothes are worn out. His feet would have been bleeding at this point because he's been walking for miles. You know, when he left the house, he probably had fatty cheeks, and he looked well-groomed. And so when he came back, there must have just been this faint image of who his son used to be. And what does the father do? He runs. He runs to his child. Listen to me. In that culture, those elders don't run. They got their robes there. You know, it was customary. You keep your robe at your feet. If your robe even came up slightly, that was dishonorable. And listen, the father wasn't doing one of these shuffle runs. He was running like an athlete to his child. He was so excited that his son had finally come back. This is the compassion and the love that the Father has towards us. You see, the community would have been thinking, what nerve that son must have had showing up. Whatever they thought was shameful up to that point is definitely shameful now because listen to what happens. That son who deserved the shame, he deserved it. The Father ran after him and embraced him. And he hugged him and he kissed him. Where do you think the shame is being directed right now? To the Father. You see, Jesus takes the shame and he lays it on himself just like the Father did. You see, that community is no longer looking at the Son and saying, how shameful. They're looking at the Father and saying, what a shameful act of the Father to do something like that. You see, Jesus took the shame of humanity for you and I in order that we would never have to experience what we actually deserve, which is the full wrath of God. And instead we get his mercies and his grace and his compassion and he gives us all the richness of life. You see, God sees our helpless estate and he shows compassion on us. And notice before the son can even come to him and say, I want to work this off, he doesn't even give him a chance. He cuts him off because at the moment of reconciliation there is nothing we can do to earn favor with God. Jesus does all the work. It is a gift of grace, not work, so that no one can boast. Our boast is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives them the robe, which is a family honor symbol of royalty. He gives them the ring, and now he has the authority to act on behalf of the Father. We have the authority to act on behalf of the Son, Jesus Christ, to go and speak the gospel and proclaim it to all the world. 
Praise God. And then he's given us sandals that represent sonship. We are children, children with God. It's a repentance that's been received in full reconciliation by the Father. And what does he do? He kills the calf. Listen, he doesn't kill the calf for his son. He kills the calf for himself. Because the Father has every reason to celebrate the return of his son. This is a sort of grace that upset the Pharisees and the scribes. God's grace was so embarrassing to them to think that Jesus would go and seek out and save sinners. This is a repentance that's been received. There's restoration in it. There's forgiveness in it. And we have received full sonship in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does it, listen to this, without delay. The moment you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you have been received in full into the family and the kingdom of God. You see, the Father is a picture of God in Christ coming down from heaven to our lowly place to seek and save the lost sinner. God finds his joy in the salvation of how many sinners? One sinner. Listen, if you were the only person in all the world who needed salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus would have come into the world and he would have died for you. But instead, he's chosen a multitude of people who would come to know the character and the love of the Father in order that we would worship him. What a tremendous privilege it is, you know, that individually throughout the week, we get to experience God's grace. And then we come into a setting like this where collectively all of our voices and our thoughts and our motives are now centered around Jesus Christ. This is such a sweet incense to God. He loves what's happening on a Sunday morning. Praise God that we have this opportunity to lift our praises to him. There was a time when we came to the Father, and he ran and he met us with his loving embrace. We aren't even worthy of it. Yet even as bad as we are, there is no limitation or hesitation on the Father's part to give us, listen to this, full reconciliation. The Father is waiting for some of you, and there's nothing you can do but confess. Confess your desperation. Confess, confess your sinfulness to God, because we are unworthy of such tremendous treasure from God. And as you cast yourself into God, you are going to be received into the arms of the loving, merciful, and gracious God we serve. Jesus has come down from his heavenly throne to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and I. We serve a God who loves us, he embraces us, and he accepts us where we are. This is the joyful reality of the Father over even one repentant sinner. But what happens when our prides, the, hearts, the, the pride of our heart just dwells up inside of us and we're not willing to accept that reality? That brings us to the last point, which is a repentance that's rejected in verses 25 to 32. Now this older son of his was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Isn't that crazy? This older brother has no idea what's taking place. 
This is evidence that there is no relationship between the older son and the father. In fact, it was the older son's responsibility when the father was about to say, go ahead and take your inheritance, come and say, oh, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Because it's been accounted to me now to oversee as the oldest son to make sure that there is not that kind of disrespect that takes place. And so he doesn't say a word about the son when he goes, but when the son comes back, he has every reason now to criticize, doesn't he? But he has no idea that there's a party taking place. I could just see a servant walking around, you know, with some goods or whatever, and he's like, hey, hey, what's going on over there? And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf. That is the best stuff that he's got. Because he's received him back safe and sound. And then the older brother said, oh, what a joy. We rejoice in what great, awesome thing that just took place. Let's go and celebrate. Nope, that's not what he did. But he was angry. So the pride now is just dwelling up in him, and he's just getting angry about the whole situation. And he refused to go in. His father came out and treated him. But he answered his father. Listen, he doesn't even say father. He totally takes the father. Look, he says, these many years I have served you and listened to all these eyes and me's. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, it's not even as part of the family anymore, when this son of yours, right? You know how when, when you, your, son, your child does something and your spouse is nearby, it's no longer your child? You go, hey, that child of yours did this thing. It's kind of like that. This son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. And look, Jesus purposely inserted that in there. People question whether, he, he, you know, whether prostitutes were involved or not. It's like, look, it's a story. The fact that Jesus inserted it in there is telling us that that's how bad it was. So he's including even a little more detail into the, the wretchedness of what took place. You killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And isn't that awesome? He's just still so gentle. See, God doesn't limit his love towards people who just come to that awful place. He's also loving the prideful person because, see, we are also the older brother. Because we look at our own attitudes and we do it relative to other people's and we go, well, look at that guy over there. Good thing I'm not that person. I'm a lot more holy and righteous than that person. Thank God for that. See, that's the prideful attitude that this older brother had, especially towards his son. And listen, at this point, the Pharisees and the scribes are thinking, finally, somebody we can relate to, somebody with honor and respect. You know, and so they're finally smiling. Jesus purposely inserts them into the storyline. And as you read through it, it gets to the end. See, we know what happened to the younger son. He came back to the father, and the father embraced him and kissed him, and then he sacrificed that fattened calf as a celebration for how joyful he was over that, right? How did the story with the older brother end? It just kind of cuts off, doesn't it? I mean, like when you watch those movies, you know, they have sequels, and then you get to the very end of it, and it just cuts off, and you're like, oh! i got to wait till the next one now in order to know how this thing ends. Well, it's kind of like that, except that the ending hasn't happened yet. Because you see the pride and the anger that's been dwelling up in this older brother is ultimately going to lead to murder. He says, you are not even worthy to be walking on this world. 
with your grace and the embarrassment that you have brought to us, what did the older brother do? He put up a cross. And he hung his father on the cross. But you see, it doesn't end there, does it? Because three days later, Jesus rose from the grave and he claimed victory over death in order that everybody who had put their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ would receive full reconciliation in him. And you know that you can trust it because he is risen from the grave. Jesus proved exactly that he is who he said he was. In Christ, we have full reconciliation and sonship in God the Father, and it resulted in death, even death on a cross, in order that the wrath that we deserve would be laid on Jesus Christ and the glory that we don't deserve and the righteousness that we don't deserve would be imputed to us. Look, we get to experience the fullness and the richness of God's glory, but we will never, ever, ever have to experience the judgment of God because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank God for that. So we lean so heavily on our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I want to conclude with some things for you to consider. One is this, that in his lost state, the son found death. Remember, the father said he was dead, and he's now alive. There are people that are like the walking dead right now who need to find life in Jesus Christ. He was dead, whereas in the father he found life Whereas everything he had lost on his own ambitions, it was restored in full by the work of the Father. Whereas in his rejection from the world and the community around him, he found acceptance in the Father. And finally, whereas he was faced with the problem and the dire circumstance he was in, he found full peace and resolution in God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your loving embrace. I don't know where we are individually, whether we're in a broken state, questioning what love you have for us, or whether we're prideful in our motives towards people. Lord, we want to release all of that, and we want to lean on the loving embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave it all up for us. You see, your love is not without Jesus. It is limitless. He is pure and holy and righteous, and he is the only way to receive the righteousness that brings full reconciliation with you. And now there is nothing, nothing, nothing that will take us from the love of your loving embrace. We lovingly praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.